If you have your Bibles, turn them uh, with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And uh, if you don't have a Bible and you would like one to follow along, just raise your hand and I'll make sure that someone uh, gets one out to you. Scripture will also be up on the screen. And we're starting at verse 14. And if uh, the scripture sounds a little bit familiar, you're like, hey, uh, this, uh, I've heard this before. You heard it last week. And we're reading it again. And uh, after uh, a couple of weeks, we're going to really have this scripture in our heart and know it well. Acts 2, starting at verse 14. Hear the word of God. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David himself, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Father God, you did not leave your son in the grave to see corruption and decay. Death had no hold over the Lord Jesus, who alone is righteous, who alone is sinless. All of us who are bound by sin, who have sin, who live in sin, death has a hold of us. Your word says that the soul that sins shall die and the wages of sin is death. But God, thank you so much that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, whom your spirit raised from the dead. And Lord God, I pray that everyone in this room would encounter the Father and would encounter the Son and would encounter the Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I've got to use the handheld again, so I apologize again in advance if I get a little too excited and the cord ends up getting around somebody's neck or something, all right? So I'm used to having being wireless here. But, um, you know, uh, as I was thinking about the message today and thinking about um, what Peter's about to do in this sermon that he's giving, the next section, I got to thinking about, um, she don't want to do it? Um, okay, we'll get someone else. Let's see here. Um, Kaylee, could you help me out here in a second? Would you reach back there and grab that thing that uh, Miss Carl is trying to hand to you real quick and just put it on for me, all right? Don't ask any questions. Just do it. All right. Now, I got to thinking about what we're, what's about to happen today. And so I got to thinking about um, superheroes and their secret identities. Have you ever thought about that, these superheroes and their secret identities? I've got a couple of superheroes in the, in the audience tonight, today, today. Well, this is a comedy routine tonight out there. All right, so I mean, I need my superheroes to go ahead and put those. Yeah, there you go. All right, don't let anybody see your secret identity. All right, so I need my superheroes to come on up here. Kaylee, I'm sorry this got sprung on you, but you're, you're doing good. Come on up here. This is a not a very happy superhero right here. All right, it's okay. All right, okay, I'm sorry. Um, okay, come on over here, superhero. Now, obviously, you guys have no idea who these people are, even though I've just said this is Kaylee. All right, but you have no idea over here. Who this is because the moment they put on that mask, obviously they are indistinguishable, right? You cannot tell who this is here. Oops, sorry. And and who this is here. You just can't tell because that mask. And, and that's always all I always liked about the, the comic books and about the um, the movies and everything is that you know they put on this mask and like no one else can recognize another single feature on their face, you know, or you know, what is it, Clark Kent? He's the opposite. You know, he shows his face when he's Superman, but then he puts on these glasses. This would be like a Deemer taking off his glasses and going, who are you? I don't know who you are. You know, it's just like, anyway, it just blows my mind. But anyway, so right here we have um, a superhero and a, a superhero heroine, all right? And this this is the green green guy, the green, the green lantern, thank you. And this is the pink panther, all right? So we have... We have our two superheroes here. You got to smile for me, Kaylee, because I feel really bad. All right, now, all right, I got to see if anybody knows. You know who this is. This is Kaylee. All right, does anybody, any child out there, have any idea who this is behind 
We're gonna we're gonna unmask the superhero. Does anybody have any idea? I know that nobody has any idea. Let's see here. Back here. Who do you think this is? It's not Jacob. Wow, it works. The 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 mask works. No, it's it's. It, wait, hold on. Let's see here. Uh, let me go back to the sound guy at the back there, right there, running our our our, uh, our screens. Who who do you think this is up here? It's. Let's see here. This may be a shock. Let's see. Oh, it's Caleb. Wow, wow, the, boy. Okay, and let me see here. I'm pretty sure this is Kaylee. Yeah, yeah. She's still not smiling. All right. Thank you, Kaylee. All right, y'all, y'all can have a seat. I'll let you keep the mask when you're done. All right. So maybe that's a consolation. Here, go ahead and keep the pink mask. All right. You just you wear that whenever you want to. Okay. You know these these superheroes in these in these uh, uh, comic books or in these movies. You know they they're masked. And, and and I was thinking about this passage here because Peter has just announced to all the people there that are listening to him, which is at least more than three thousand people, because not everyone there got saved. So there's thousands of people listening to Peter, and he's just stood up and he's explaining this occurrence, this these weird languages that the people are hearing, these tongues, and and he's explaining um, the this sound of the rushing wind, and people are, are their attention has been caught now, and he says. These are the last days. He quotes Joel and tells them these are the last days. These are the days when the Holy Spirit will come in power and that God will do some mighty things. And so he announces that these are the last days. But every good Jewish person standing out there knew one thing. If these are the last days, then that means the Messiah has come. Because the last days couldn't come unless the Messiah came. So the next question in their hearts is, wait a second, Peter, who is this Messiah? Who is this masked man? Tell us, Peter, who the Messiah is. And so Peter now, in the next section of the sermon that we're going to study today, goes into a detailed discussion of who the Messiah is. He's about to unmask the Messiah. And just like it's crazy when you think about these comic books and how people couldn't recognize the superhero, Sometimes when you read the Old Testament passages that testify to who Jesus is and you look at the miracles that Jesus did, you think, how did people miss it? How did the Jewish people, and still today, the majority of the Jewish people have missed the Messiah? And so Peter now is going to unmask the Messiah for the people listening there. And he does that in the section we're going to study today, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. We're only going to go three verses today. So and then we'll finish the rest of the sermon in the next two uh, uh, messages. But today, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. And actually, I'm going to back up and read verse 21. I'm going to read these verses again. I know Deemer just read them, but I'm going to read them again. It says in verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's part of Joel's prophecy. Calling on the name of the Lord. And now Peter is going to say who this Lord is that brings salvation. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So today's message title is The Gospel, God's Plan from the Beginning, Part 2. And as we go through today's message, 
I want us to see that Peter is trying to show the Jewish people who the Messiah is. And so Peter has some things he wants them to see and he wants us to see. So he, as he does this, he gives us the meat of the gospel. He gives us the reasons that Jesus is the Messiah. And we see four things that God did in this passage and one thing that we did. And that's what I want us to focus on today. The first thing I want us to see, the first thing Peter wants his listeners and us to see is, one, that God showcased and endorsed Jesus as Messiah. Verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. Now, Nazareth was a, was a humble Small Galilean village. Yes, Jesus, God had chosen a lowly family from a lowly town to bring forth the greatest of man. And it does say Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Yes, Jesus was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. This is so vital to the gospel message. This is so important. If we deny that Jesus is 100% man or 100% God, the whole gospel unravels. Jesus is the God-man. Today, the tendency is to deny his deity, right? Because in our world today, we've sort of dismissed anything supernatural. And, and so the tendency today is to deny Jesus' deity. But during Jesus' time, and, or during Peter's time, and during the time that the New Testament was being written, actually the tendency was the other way around. The tendency was to deny his humanity. Okay, Jesus is God, but he's, he's not 100% man, but he has to be 100% man and 100% God for the gospel to work. If there's no humanity, then he could not be an adequate substitutionary Adam who lived and breathed without sinning and who would be punished for our sins. But if there's no deity, then he cannot have been born. He could not have borne the full wrath of God and could not be our mediator. I think today sometimes we... We unintentionally deny the humanity of Christ because the Bible teaches us clearly that Jesus, uh, he's gone before us and he's been tempted as we've been tempted and he stood in our place. And so sometimes we think about Jesus being tempted, we'll say, well, that was easy for him. He's God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach he's God, but the Bible also teaches that every temptation that we've ever faced, he faced, but even in a greater degree because he never gave in. For us, temptation may come and it may continue to come, and after it gets to a certain degree, we kind of collapse under it, don't we? But for Jesus, there was no collapse under the temptation to sin, and so it continued to be more pressure and more pressure every moment he was alive. And so Jesus' humanity is absolutely important for us to understand and to grasp here. And it says here that he was attested to you by God. Attested to you. Now this word, attested, carries a variety of senses to it, and all of them can be applied here. It can mean this. It can mean proclaimed to a high office. So God has proclaimed Jesus to a high office, and that is true. He has proclaimed Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the Messiah. He has proclaimed him to a high office office. It can also mean to exhibit something. And that's what God also did. He, he put forth his son to exhibit holiness, perfection. And it also can mean to put forth proof, like in a, in a law case, to put forth proof. And God did that as well. He puts forth proof and showcases that this Jesus is the Messiah. So he endorses him and he showcases Jesus as the Messiah. Which takes me to the next point, because God demonstrated and proved that Jesus was the Messiah. God demonstrated and proved that Jesus was the Messiah. A man attested to you by God. How was he attested to us by God? He was attested with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him 
in your midst, as you yourselves know. So how did he demonstrate and prove who Jesus was? Through miraculous and amazing deeds. This word, mighty works, you may, you may recognize the Greek word. It's dunamis, which is um, the word that we get is the root for our word dynamite. You've probably heard preachers talk about that word before. And it's, it, it's mighty works. It's these mighty things that Jesus has done, these powerful, explosive acts that can't be denied as being God, God done. Okay? For example, I think we sometimes, well, I just think sometimes we, we, we throw around the word miracle, don't we? As a matter of fact, I do it too. I'll be, I'll be the first to confess. We talk about our building out there on 1522 Harbins Road, and we refer to it sometimes as a miracle because we didn't do anything to earn the building. We haven't paid for the building. We, we, we didn't get the land. Somehow. It was all given to us. And so we say, you know, that was a miracle that God did. And I think it's okay to use that language, but sometimes we need to be careful because the mighty works of God that we're talking about here when it says God attested, you know, proved, demonstrated that Jesus was the Messiah by these mighty acts and these mighty works is talking about things you can't deny that are simply God things. We're talking Red Sea kind of things, you know, splitting the Red Sea. In the Old Testament, oftentimes they'll talk about God's mighty works, and the first one they'll mention is that he led them through the sea. So we're talking about those kind of things. The feeding of the 5,000 is a mighty act of God. The raising of Lazarus, that's a mighty act of God. These are things that no man could do. And so they were powerful acts that demonstrated the power of God upon Jesus and demonstrated and proved that he was the Messiah. The word wonders means mind-blowing deeds, things that leave us wondering. How did, how did that happen? So he did these wonders that left us speechless without explanation and signs. What does a sign do? It points to something. These signs pointed to the fact that Jesus was Messiah. And then it's clear here the Bible says that, that God did these things through him. This is the second thing we notice in this passage that God has done. God attested him, attested him as the Messiah, and then also God did miracles through him. He's done these miracles through Christ, thus demonstrating and proving his claim to be Messiah. So God put forth Jesus, and God did the miracles, but God did even more than that. God planned and ordained the death of Jesus, his Messiah. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Isaiah 53 is important here. I want to read it to you, starting in verse 3. Speaking of, this is a prophecy about the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and was esteemed, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked 
and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, this is the key verse, verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is a simply amazing passage. So much in that passage in Isaiah. That's what I'm talking about when I say, how did they miss it? How did they miss it? Because Isaiah clearly teaches in that passage, we clearly see that the Messiah, the way he was going to deliver his people was to be crushed by the Father. To bear the sins of many. And then it also talks in there in that passage about the resurrection. Because it talks about him prospering after being killed. And so this passage here clearly teaches us what Peter says here. And that is that God planned and ordained the death of his own son. Now it says here he was delivered up. Delivered up means betrayed. Now he wasn't betrayed by God. He was betrayed by Judas. But he was delivered up according to God's plan. This is an important distinction to make. It doesn't say he was betrayed by God. It says he was betrayed according to God's plan. So God's plan was for Judas to do what Judas did. Luke chapter 22, verse 22 says, Jesus said this, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. So Jesus goes to the cross as it's already been determined, but woe to the man who betrays him. In other words, there's human responsibility here that Judas bears for betraying the Son of God, yet it was still part of God's plan for it all to happen. And there's that tension in the Scriptures, and it's all throughout the Scriptures from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, that there's God's sovereignty over every single act in mankind, Yet there is human responsibility for every single act we commit. And you know what? Don't try to explain away the tension. Embrace the tension and know that God is sovereign. And know that we will be held responsible for our actions. And so we see here in this passage that it was part of God's plan for Judas to do exactly what Judas did. Then it talks about foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is more than simply knowing the future. Foreknowledge is more than just looking down the corridor of time and seeing what's going to happen. I think some people will look at a passage like this and see the word foreknowledge and simply say, okay, that makes sense to me. God looked down the corridor of time and he saw that Judas was going to betray and he saw that the Roman Pilate was going to, to send us Jesus to the crucifixion and he looked down the corridor of time and we just, okay, well, then I'm going to make my plan around what people are going to do. The question is, is God... A proactive God or a reactive God? I believe God is a proactive God. He is not a reactive God, even looking down the corridor of time to see what we are going to do. He's in absolute control. If he were a reactive God, how on earth could we have any confidence that everything's going to turn out right? But we do have confidence that Revelation is going to end 
the, 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 everything's going to end the way it's told in Revelation and that there will be a day when there are no more sins, there are no more tears, there is no more pain because God is on his throne and he's always been on his throne. So foreknowledge, we can't simply say that God knew what was going to happen and allowed it to happen. Foreknowledge in Scripture is often used as a, an active, selective kind of knowledge which regards, one, regards with favor and makes one an object of love. Besides the fact that Peter doesn't let us just conclude that God looked down the quarter of time because he uses the word definite plan. So Peter, Peter doesn't leave it up to that interpretation that God just, okay, I see what's going to happen. He says it was his definite plan. Definite means it was set. It was appointed. It was predetermined. Plan means will or purpose. It was God's preset purpose set in stone before the world began that Jesus would die the way he died, that those people would would, would uh, betray him the way they betrayed him. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose, plan, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The grace that you have to be sustained as a believer, the grace you had to receive the gospel message, that was given to you, according to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, sorry, before the ages began. Before it began. Which means Christ paid the penalty before the ages began. Not in our time-space continuum, but God exists outside of time. You have to remember that. Ephesians 1.4 says he chose us in him, Jesus chose us, in, or God chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Think about that verse. Why should we be holy? Why should we live blameless and holy lives? Because Jesus chose us before the foundation of the world, because our sins have already been paid for. Revelation 13.8 says, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, talking about Worshiping uh, the, the Antichrist and everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb that was slain. And so there's people who will not worship the Antichrist, who will not worship the image that the Antichrist sets up. And those people who will not do it are those whose names are written in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So our names were written in Christ's blood into God's book when? Not A.D. 33. They were written in God's book through the blood of Christ before the world began. The scripture doesn't leave us much wiggle room here. God had a definite plan, and he brought it to pass exactly the way he wanted to. The plan for Jesus to die was set before the foundation of the world. God planned it, but God is not guilty of sin. Now, if you plan a murder, you're guilty, all right? If I plan a murder, I'm guilty of sin. But God is not because God's purposes are higher than our purposes. God's purposes were love and salvation and redemption and his own glory. Therefore, he's not guilty of sin. Now, I try to think of some sort of analogy to help us with that. Because that's really hard to think of God planning the murder of his son and not being guilty. And so, I thought, you know, are there ever deaths that are planned that can be considered justified? Now, I don't know what your view is here on capital punishment. But when someone's on death row and they, all their appeals have been exhausted, 
a plan has to go into place. A plan goes into place. A date is set. The, um, the, all the, the stuff that's got, is gathered together, the table is, is prepared, and the person is then put to death. And they are, that is a planned event, but the people putting that person to death are not guilty. They have a just cause behind that. So that's just to help us understand a little bit that we can understand the planning of a death apart from guilt. But you know what? In this case, the planning of the death of Jesus, there is guilt, but the guilt belongs to us because I want to bring us to the only thing in this list that we did. We crucified and killed Jesus, our Messiah. God didn't sin. God's not guilty. We are. We crucified and killed Jesus, our Messiah. It was God's plan, but our sin that crucified Jesus. That paradox of human responsibility and God's sovereignty, again, is seen throughout Scripture. Now, in this passage here, uh, Peter says, you, you crucified Jesus. Okay, when he says you, he's probably referring, we can say, probably referring to Jews. The Jewish people have crucified Jesus. And then he says lawless men, okay, by the hands of lawless men. That's probably referring to Gentiles, those who didn't have the law. But it goes deeper than that. When Peter says you, he's not trying to pick some people out of the crowd that were involved 50 days before in the murder of Christ. He's not going, oh, you were there, and you, oh, you, you. More than likely, a great number of the people who were there had nothing to do with the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember, this is a, this is a festival when people are coming in to Jerusalem. So there's a lot of people there. Okay, they may have heard of what's happened, but they were not in the crowd that was chanting, crucify him, crucify him. So how is it fair then that Peter looks at this crowd and says, you crucified Jesus by the hands of lawless men? It's fair because what Jesus, what I believe that Peter is referring to here is that each person listening, each person listening is involved in the death of the Messiah, and that includes you and I. Each person listening has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each person listening has earned the wages of sin. Therefore, it was our sin that led Jesus to the cross. It was our sin that crucified him. Colossians 2.14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our sin was nailed to the cross. Who was nailed to the cross? Jesus was nailed to the cross. And so when Jesus was nailed to the cross, it was our sin that was nailed to the cross. That's how we can read 2 Corinthians 5.21 and understand it. It says, for our sake he made him to be sin. He made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And only by his grace can we be redeemed and reconciled to him. We are all enemies of God unless a work of grace is done in our hearts. So we killed Jesus. Every single person in this room, every single person there, those over 3,000 souls, we all killed Jesus. And the language Peter use, uses is pretty graphic. Literally, when it says crucified in our text here, literally it means you affixed him to the cross. In other words, you nailed the nails. So as Peter's speaking to us through the word of God here, he's saying, you held the nail, you swung the hammer, you affixed Jesus to the cross. You did it. We did it. We nailed him to the cross, and we killed the Savior. But sin is not the victor. 
And perfect holiness cannot be defeated. So I want us to look at the last thing that Peter says that God did here. God vindicated and raised Jesus the Messiah. God vindicated and raised Jesus the Messiah. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God did it. God did it. Now the Son himself and the Holy Spirit were all involved in the resurrection, but the focus here is on God the Father who accomplished his plan. His plan, he, he, he showcased Jesus. He proved through the miracles and the mighty works that he was the Messiah. He planned the death of the Messiah for our sins and for his own glory. We were involved only in that we drove the nails in. And then God finished the plan by raising his son, by vindicating and raising Jesus. Verse um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything we might be preeminent. Firstborn. Here it talks about this, this, this language here where it says, He loosed, loosed the pains of death. That word pangs is actually birth pains. He loosed the birth pains of death. Now, in the Jewish um, culture, that phrase was often used to refer to being tied by cords. Death is, is you're, you're, these pains of death are cords. And so Jesus has broken loose from the cords of death, but also this language of, 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 of birth. I think in Colossians 1.18, we really see it. that He's the firstborn from the dead. He's loosed it. And one day, all who believe in him will also receive a resurrected body. And it will be completed at that time. But until then, it's been loosed. It could not hold on to him. It could not keep him in the grave. It was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? Because death only has a claim over sinfulness. Death has no claim over holiness. Death came because of sin. And death was defeated because of perfect holiness lived out in human flesh. Jesus is more powerful than death. And that's why he himself said in John 18, verses 17, sorry, John 10, verses 17 through 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Listen to what Jesus says. No one takes it from me. Okay, think about what we just said. Who's guilty of the murder of Christ? We are. But he just said, no one takes it from me. Christ couldn't have been murdered had he not laid it down. Because it was part of the Father's perfect plan. We drove the nails in, but Jesus laid his life down. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and now listen, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. That's Jesus. That's the God whom we serve. That's a sovereign God who rules the universe. He could lay down his life. And can take it up again because he is in control. So now we can say, because of what God did by raising Jesus along with the Apostle Paul, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? Now there's so much more to talk about with the resurrection. Okay, why? Why was the resurrection necessary? How do we know it really happened? Is it that important? I mean, is the resurrection that important to our faith? It absolutely is, but I want to save that for next week. 
we're going to get to talking about the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection. And I want us to see that our faith unravels completely without the resurrection. And so Peter knows that as well. So Peter's sermon continues beyond this point. He begins to talk about the resurrection. So we'll hit that next week. But for now, for now, I want us to see what 3,000 people saw on that day. I want us to see what God did. We've unmasked the Messiah. And if you're here this morning and you, you, your understanding of Jesus is that, well, he was a good guy. He maybe was a prophet. And uh, he was certainly a good teacher. He was wise. He was a martyr. Some people even say, yeah, he laid down his life because of love. He loved people so much he just he died. He was willing to go as an example of what love is all about. That's the most popular thing you hear today. Yeah, I believe Jesus died for us. He died as an example of love. That's not why he died. Surely it's the example of the greatest love that anyone could ever have. But Jesus died more than to be an example. He died to be a substitute for all those who have sinned and deserve the wrath of God. All those who will come and accept that substitutionary payment. So this morning, as you guys are sitting here, I don't know the hearts of every single person in this room, but I tell you this. If your view of Jesus has been less than what Peter says here, then your faith is less than what it needs to be. Because Jesus is the Messiah who came and bore our sins on the cross. And don't begin to think that you and I are not guilty for his death, because we are. So I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes and close with the word of prayer as you get ready to sing a couple more songs. And let's just think about what Jesus did. And I want us to think about the fact that he planned it from, from, from long ago, from before the foundation of the world. So with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, if you're here this morning and your view of the gospel and your view of what God has done is that God had to come up with a plan B, that God had to come up with some sort of plan because in the garden, everything just collapsed and that his first plan failed. If you're here this morning and that's been your view of God and your view of the gospel and your view of what Jesus did, then please, please this morning, let God do a work in your heart and help you see that the gospel was planned before any of those things ever happened, before the fall. So God, this morning we come to you we ask, Father, that you change our hearts. God, help us to see who the Messiah really is. There's so many false views of Jesus out there today. God, we know that there's seminars and books and articles that try to explain who the true historical Jesus is. But God, if we understand the historical Jesus that, that walked the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee, but miss who you said he is, then God, we've missed Jesus altogether. So, God, this morning we acknowledge that we are sinners. We have blood-stained hands, hands that held nails in our left hand and a mallet in our right hand and drove them through the perfect, sinless flesh of Jesus. So, God, we ask this morning that you'd help us understand that we had a part in this, but all it is was a guilty part, the sinful part. But, God, you had a part in the whole death of Jesus. You planned it from before the world began, and your part of the plan was perfect and holy and righteous and gives you great glory. And, God, if we will embrace the gospel message that you, Jesus, died for our sins and rose again victorious over that sin and death, that we, too, one day can break free from the pains of death. 
in a resurrected body, and we can belong to your family forever and ever. So, God, we pray this morning that you'd move in our hearts, be with us as we have this time of response through singing. And, Lord, we want to honor you with our giving, with our prayer requests. God, we pray for our church right now, Lord. We're facing some challenges, but, God, we trust, Lord, that you're in every single bit of it. And that before the foundation of the world, you had every single step of what we're going through already planned out. God, if my view of you is any less than that, then I fall apart as a person. So, God, we trust, Lord, that you're in control. And, Lord, we pray that you be with us now this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you just